We are very thankful you all are coming out for the delayed last event in our McLean House Lecture Series. My name is Caitlin Lutz. I'm here from the Alumni Association. We've been hosting a series through the month of February regarding the relationship between arts and culture. And this is going to be last presentation. Professor Michael Berry will be speaking this evening. He is here from the Near Eastern Studies Department. And I thank you all very much for coming. Please join me in welcoming Professor Barry. Well, without more ado, with the machinery working, inshallah, the machinery working, we should plunge right into the fray. Uh, the fray is the fact that there's a great civilization out there with a tremendous amount of figurative painting, a tremendous amount of art. And I venture to say that no civilization on the face of the earth is studied today with such strange disregard for an entire component of its expression, which was the artistic in the most visual and figurative sense. The idea has taken root that there is no such thing as figurative art in Islamic civilization. Well, there is. And we have thousands upon thousands of examples of it. Well, in that case, maybe they're just an aberration. Or they, really, were, they weren't really painted by Arabs, who are the only Muslims who are supposed to count. But they were painted by Arabs. And as a matter of fact, much of this painting was created in Baghdad, the capital of the entire Islamic world. So we're faced with this strange branch of civilization where all these things which were painted for kings in extraordinarily precious manuscripts using the most expensive material to illustrate texts which are laced throughout with Quranic quotations steeped in mystical concerns. All this is brushed aside as decorative, adornment, secondary, unimportant not central. Well, if that's the case, why were these things painted for kings? And why are kings represented in these paintings? Now, that is the paradox of Islamic culture and Islamic civilization, because after all, when we study ancient Egypt, we have to know the art of ancient Egypt, or Japan, or 15th century Italy, or the Maya, each time we take care to look at how such a civilization expresses itself visually in order to fathom better how this civilization perceives itself and allows us to perceive it. Islam is the only culture in the history of the world where this artistic manifestation has been pushed to a side, as if it were literally a sideline. Now this is a paradox because we did witness some three years ago in Afghanistan, a widespread destruction of every figurative image that a particular Islamic movement, calling itself an Islamic movement, could get its hands on, or rather, its dynamite to. So there is an iconophobic strain in Islam. How do we explain both the iconophobic strain and the extraordinary prevalence of so much visual imagery? So let's proceed with the paradox. The first paradox appears before us right here. On the right, an image of King Solomon, the symbolic king, the king 
that all kings who ruled throughout Islamic civilization from the 7th century to the 18th or even into the early 19th believed they had to emulate as their archetype, the archetype of rule. And Solomon is represented. And on the left, we see that Islamic ruler who more than any other between, say, the Umayyad dynasty and the fall of the Mughals in the 19th century, in other words, over a thousand years, more than any other, this ruler in the late 17th century in what is now India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and most of Afghanistan, the Mughal emperor, tried to implement Islamic law, went out of his way to jettison the very foundation of his empire in order to implement what he saw was the strictest rule of Sunni Islam. And yet this same emperor, ruling in the late 17th century, so famous for smashing idols, for destroying Hindu temples, is portrayed, allowed himself to be portrayed on horseback with a flaming halo around his head. This is Emperor Aurangzeb. Now, if we look at the symbolism of both these paintings, if you look on the right, this was painted in the late, in the 1560s by a certain Qadimi for one of the princes of the Safavid royal house, using very expensive material, gold, lapis lazuli, malachite, orpiment. The Solomon sits here in state. He is veiled because the idea is that God's light shines upon his countenance as if upon a mirror. And by so shining as tajali, it is too much for ordinary mortals to bear. Therefore, the painter has draped Solomon's face with a veil. By Solomon sits his spouse, the Queen of Sheba. Everything in this painting is allegory and everything can be deciphered. We leave the world of pure adornment and we enter into the world of symbolism. The actual subject of this painting, which is supposed to illustrate a few lines by a late 15th century poet called John Mee, is actually an illustration of the poet Jami was referring to, who lived two centuries earlier, Nizami. And it's a story within a story, framed exactly like the tales of the Thousand and One Nights. The subject of the story is, one day King Solomon and, Queen of Sheba, and the Queen of Sheba here haloed, because this is the far, meaning the glory of the king. So he has a halo just as Emperor Aurangzeb has, except that this halo is Chinese style, borrowed from Chinese Buddhist paintings. The emperor and his wife are sad. They are in despair because the child born to them is paralyzed in both arms and both legs. He's held here by the nurse. Solomon prays and an angel of the Lord appears before him, the archangel Gabriel. The archangel Gabriel tells Solomon you have secretly sinned, and the queen of Sheba, Bilqis, has secretly sinned, and this is why your child has been born paralyzed. But if you confess your secret sin, O Solomon, and you confess your secret sin, O queen of Sheba, O Bilqis, then the child will be cured, because this child is the child of your sin. And Solomon admits, I may be the richest king in all the world, but every time an ambassador comes to me with a gift, I can't help wondering, what is he going to bring me? And as soon as Solomon admits this, the child begins to wave its arms. 
Now it's the turn of the Queen of Sheba. And she admits that she may be married to the most handsome king in the world, but every time she sees a handsome young officer, she can't but wonder what it would have been like to have been married to him instead. And as soon as she says so, the child wiggles its legs. The child is cured, and the spectators gaze in awe at the miracle. Indeed, one spectator bites his finger between his teeth, which is the conventional sign in these paintings for awe, amazement, wonder. Now here, this is, we all looked at this in our Arabian Nights class, is the minister, Azaf, Asaf, shown here with his pen case stuck in his sash. Now the minister here is a wise and very saintly old man who recognizes that the character sitting on the throne is truly Solomon and not an imposter. Because once upon a time, Solomon, on account of his sins, lost his ring of power and was replaced on the throne by a devil who impersonated him. A devil who was known as Sahr, meaning the rock demon. And after many adventures, Solomon finally recovered his ring and overthrew the imposter and shut him up forever in a prison of stone. It's the story of Ashmadai in rabbinical literature, Asmodeus in medieval European literature. Now, the devil here is shown in submission. The, the good minister here knows that this is truly Solomon and not the demon impersonating him because Solomon has shown the rule of princely intellect. And intellect must dominate the lower passions just as Solomon dominates the demons. So the demon here working in Solomon's garden has been put into the service of Solomon and he is a permanent attribute of Solomon. It means that the Solomonic king rules over his own passions just like the Hebrew prophet king ruled over the submissive demons and forced them to do his bidding, bidding and indeed enrich him by diving into the sea and bringing up the treasures of the sea and building the temple. So now the minister knows this is truly Solomon. And because all these books are addressed to princes, the heirs to the throne, the young man here asks his mother and points at the scene being enacted here and the mother explains the moral. Seek ye not the kingdom of Solomon, for where is Solomon now? This kingdom is only dust. But this story is framed in an outer story. Here you have the outer building, and here again, a young man asks his mother what is happening in the story below, because Nizami's whole book is dedicated both to his king and to his own son. Dar nasihate farzan de khesh, admonishment unto my own son, with the idea that everybody who reads the book becomes the poet's spiritual son. So here what is happening is the evil old crone, a favorite with the painter Kadimi. The evil old crone who corrupts and inveils is a symbol of the corruption of this lower world. She is a witch and she's trying to get inside the palace. She's trying to at least to smuggle a note to one of the ladies in waiting perhaps in order to arrange a tryst a love affair with somebody outside. And she has already corrupted the young man here who is willing to take her note and take it into the castle. But fortunately, he is prevented from doing so by a wiser, more mature old officer. And here, another page points to the moral of the story. And the page 
holds the horse in check. This is the sultan's horse because in medieval Islamic symbolism, the horse, as Avicenna says, Dabba, the mount, is a, an allegory for the human body itself, which intellect must rule, just as Solomon rules over the inner passions. This is, of course, an image which goes back to Plato and the chariot with the good horse and the vicious horse and the charioteer, which is a symbol of the soul, must dominate the horse. And we've seen in our Arabian Nights class how this image, through the Greeks, also enters into Christian civilization and is extremely prevalent in the symbolism of the medieval Christian West. So Aurangzeb here, who in 1669 ordered the destruction of every Hindu or Buddhist relic that he could order his soldiers to destroy, is shown as a Solomonic ruler with the Solomonic halo, the far, and mounting his magnificent horse, which he fully dominates. Would you give me the next picture on the right? Now this is the sort of thing that we associate with Emperor Aurangzeb. The, the great Buddhas of Bamyan in Afghanistan, territory over which Aurangzeb ruled, were hacked and cannon fire was shot into the legs of the great Buddha and the great Buddha's face was sliced off. Probably no ruler had such technology available to commit such destruction on the Buddhas of Bamyan as Emperor Aurangzeb. Or in any case, if our Emperor Aurangzeb didn't do that, he would have been proud to if he had had the opportunity. Anyway, it seems, from the best that we know, given the state of Mughal technology, meaning cannons, that probably Emperor Aurangzeb is responsible for the destruction of so much of the great Buddhas of Bamyan as he was responsible for the destruction of so many other Hindu shrines in India itself. Next picture, on the right only. This is Mughal technology, probably, slicing off the face of the Buddha, and then, right again, the complete destruction which occurred in March 1991, just before the dynamiting of the whole thing, by people, the Taliban, who very much as their Pakistani backers made absolutely crystal clear, considered Emperor Aurangzeb to be a model ruler. On the right, right picture. And yet this ruler who hounded the Hindus, persecuted the Hindus, faces Hindu opposition, which led to the dismantling, to the disintegration of the Mughal Empire. This same emperor finds himself faced with Rajput Hindu kings who imitate every aspect of his regalia, as if the royal symbolism associated with a Mughal emperor had simply become royal symbolism over and beyond specifically Islamic symbolism. So the 18th century Hindu rulers of India show the same halo, even the yak tails or horse tails sometimes associated with Turkish kings riding to challenge the rule of the Muslim Mughal who reigns in Delhi. On the right again. And of course, these Hindu rulers were wiser than perhaps they realized, because it's true that the symbolism associated with the Muslim ruler can be traced back beyond Islam, far beyond Islam, back to the Sasanian Empire, the great Persian Empire, which ruled over so much of the Middle East 
just before the rise of Islam, and so much of what we associate with the royal symbolism of Islam, the caliphs and then the sultans, actually derives from the representations of the Sasanian king. This is Bahram Egur, who ruled in the 5th century AD and is represented here as the almighty warrior in this 6th century silver and gold dish. The ruler has the halo, because the halo is a Persian invention, the far in later Persian, or khwarna. It signifies the radiance which surrounds the head of the king, the king who is also the brother of the sun and the moon. This is crown. Can you change the left? An extremely elaborate version of the great Sasanian king. Each Sasanian king wore his own crown, but these are modifications and elaborations and variations on the same royal theme. Here is King Khosrow II, the last great Sasanian ruler before the rise of Islam in the early 7th century. He's the great hunter. He slaughters animals, and his crown shows the sun and the moon and the wings of the sunbird, the Varagna, the Persian phoenix. To the right, Aurangzeb's great predecessor, Babur, Babur, founder of the Mughal Empire in 1526, represented here in some 60 years later, impressing his new Hindu subjects with his prowess as the hunter king. Same symbolism, repeatedly emphasized. The king is a hunter. The king slaughters animals. The king rules over the beasts. Change both. Now, Sasanian royal symbolism had an extraordinary influence, not only on subsequent Islam, but also on neighboring Byzantine civilization. We know that um, the late Roman historians, people like the scribes of the Historia Augusta, say that Diocletian, the Roman emperor of the late 4th, late 3rd century, last great persecutor of the Christians, was supposedly the first to rule more Persico, like unto the manner of a Persian, with the idea that the Roman emperor now surrounds himself with the paraphernalia and takes on the attitude of a Sasanian great king. His person becomes sacred. This is a representation of Theodosius, the last ruler of the United Roman Empire in the late fourth century, very fervent Christian ruler, and he wears, or rather he shows, the halo, which is borrowed from the representations of Persian kings, the same frontal hieratic position as this Persian king beneath his representation of the sun and the moon and the halo, twin beasts guarding his throne and the king himself represented as the mighty hunter here. Next two. We won't go too far into Eastern Asian art, but we have to emphasize how much the Persian halo permeates all these surrounding civilizations so that the Buddha from the third century AD on, as in this Gandharan example from what is now Pakistan, is still the Prince Siddhartha and he has the Persian halo and the Persian crown with ribbons associated with the Persian crown. This is, and halo of course endures into the Hindu revival as in this 11th century representation of the sunbird Ganesh. Next. Next two. But to come back to the West, 
we're going to get two very important Byzantine representations which will have a lot to do with the configuration of symbolism associated with kings in Islamic art. On the left, in Thessalonica, just before the iconoclast controversy, so this is a 7th century piece, now the halo is associated with the saint, Saint Demetrius. He protects two non-saintly figures, the bishop and the magistrate, the governor. But the governor here still clutches what this Byzantine consul clutches in his right hand in this early 6th century piece. This is known in Latin and Greek as the mappa. It's a piece of cloth, like a white kerchief, which is a, a symbol of imperial rule and Roman sovereignty. And the consul throws this cloth into the arena to signal the beginning of the games. And in this mosaic here, you can see it 100 years later, just used as a symbol of imperial power. All these things, the halo and also the lion throne and this kerchief will reappear in representations of the Islamic ruler. Next, two. Now here we're beginning to get into Islamic symbolism as such. The very first representations of Islamic kings, Abd al-Malik ibn Marwan, Caliph of Damascus, who made the fateful decision so close to what the iconoclast rulers in Byzantium would do only some one generation later. Ban images from the shrine, from the place of worship, but keep them in the service of the ruler. And indeed, insofar as the ruler himself is an emblem of Solomonic power, it cannot be said that to keep imagery in the service of the ruler is a purely secular exercise. Now, Caliph Abdel Malik appears here like a, it looks like a barbarian, but he's, it's actually a representation which is borrowed from a coin of the Emperor Heraclius. So he's still represented as a Byzantine ruler. This little coin here begins to show us something else happening, which is Muslim rulers from the 8th century on, as the center of power shifts from Damascus to Mesopotamia, to Iraq, to Baghdad, the former Sasanian territory, the ruler begins to be represented like a former Sasanian king. Just give me the left, please. Okay, this is, a, this, this is actually the, the, the real size of it. It's, very, it's a very small piece. It was found in what is now Turkmenistan, and the Soviet archaeologists who found it, Luvonin, Lukonin, believe that this is actually a representation not of a Sasanian king, but of Sultan Mahmud of Ghazni himself, the 11th century ruler for whom the poet Ferdowsi wrote a great epic, the purpose of which so far as it was received in Eastern Islamic civilization, is to show the full convergence of Persian royalty and the prophetic tradition, so that the caliph is, or the sultan is successor both to Solomon and to the ancient Persian kings. Just like a Roman emperor from Christianity on is a successor both to Solomon, son of David, and to the pagan Roman emperors through God's will of convergence in a cosmocracy. So the Sultan, in any case, we know that this was peace was done in Islamic times, which means that the ruler here is shown with the Sasanian crown. You get the wings of the sunbird, Varagna, and the star, star and crescent. The Sasanian crown is increasingly stylized 
and ultimately the star and crescent, once a symbol of the brotherhood, the fraternity of the Sasanian king with the heavenly bodies will become the symbol, the blazon of Islam itself. The king also is seated upon a lion throne, and we'll see why. Next. The ex I'm sorry, uh, well, this is a further stylization. This apparently represents Caliph al-Ma'amun. It was found in, also in what is now Turkmenistan. The king, or the, the, the caliph, sits upon the lion throne, and in this case he holds, instead of a mace, a cup close against his heart, and his crown has been so stylized that you can no longer recognize the wings of the sunbird, but just the crescent, the symbol of Islam, to the, which has become the symbol of Islam. To the right only, just the right one. Here you see the tenacity of Sasanian royal representation. There are few frescoes are left from the pre-Islamic period, from dating from around the year 650 or so from what is now Tajikistan, showing the prince with his cup. And the cup signifies his heart, which is why he bears the cup against his breast. And within this heart, within the cup, shine the seven climes of the world, as if in a mirror. This means that he is the true ruler, because his mind, or his heart, is as pure as the spotless mirror which is contained in this cup. So he hugs it against his heart and he becomes the cosmocrator. This Persian symbol will be adopted in Islam and very often associated with King Solomon himself. This, a thousand years later, you get the 16th century representation of one of the first kings of ancient Iran, King Hoshang, presiding, presiding over the fire festival with the heart against his breast in exactly the same position. This by Sultan Muhammad. Next. Next two. These representations multiply in Abbasid Iraq and can be seen to have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the whim or the personal taste of this or that ruler. This is royal symbolism. This, this is a representation from a very rare piece because it comes from it's from the very last years of the 12th century, which is very rare to have paintings so, so early indeed, of the, in the last days of the Iraqi, uh, I'm sorry, Abbasid dynasty, Badruddin Lu'ulu, ruler of Mosul in what is now northern Iraq, and still in the Sasanian frontal pro pose with the cup of sovereignty in one fist, the halo, indeed his pages have halos, and here, this little white line is actually the kerchief, just like the Roman consul wears. And these representations appear on every form of support, like on this glass vessel from northern Iraq, turn of the 13th and 14th centuries. Next. The Abbasid model spreads to the distant Islamic West. And when King Roger II de Hauteville Norman king, ruler of Sicily, where formerly Muslims had ruled, in the 12th century has himself represented in, upon the, the ceiling of his royal chapel in Palermo, he calls in artists from neighboring Tunisia to depict him as a caliph, because he has so many Muslim subjects to overawe and impress. And he has the cup, 
and his pages have the halo. Now the cup. People, scholars of Islamic mysticism like Henri Corbin have suggested that we should call the cup when we translate it from Arabic or Persian, gas, or jam, a grail. Is that the same thing as the Arthurian grail? We could discuss this and it would take a whole other lecture, the symbolism of the grail in Western European culture. What it is safe to say is that once the Arthurian legend becomes heavily Christianized by the middle of the, 13th, of the, middle of the 12th century, then all sorts of ideas do come up from Islamic Spain and Sicily. And you do get the idea here in this wonderful representation of the Virgin from Romanesque Catalonia of the idea that the Virgin is a vessel for the light of the Lord. And God's light shines within her holy vessel. And that is certainly the symbol associated with the cup in Islamic mystical poetry. For this cup is the heart itself. Next two. Now again, to stay in the Muslim West, the caliphate of Cordova imitated the great art of the caliphate of Baghdad, not because it thought it necessarily was better art, but because that was simply the art of royalty. And the caliph in Cordova claimed to be caliph, at least in his domains. So he is represented as in this early, 12th I'm sorry, early 11th century piece, seated upon the throne, upheld by two lions with the cup against his heart. Here we get, is this as far west as we can go and still be part of the Islamic world? And on the right, we see why he rule, he sits upon a lion throne. Because in Persian mythology, the great king Bahram is said to have become king by daring to pick up his crown from between two lions. There was an ordeal for the throne and only the legitimate ruler would be recognized by being the hero who would dare pick up his crown from between two unchained lions. And only Prince Bahram was bold enough to bound into the fray and quell the two lions to pick up his crown. So this is represented on the same Spanish early 11th century casket. And we have a Sicilian Arab writer of the 12th century who put the whole story into flawless Arabic, man akhadat taj min bain al-assadain fahuwa bil mulk awla. For whoso taketh up his crown from between the two lions, he is the first in rule. So this is not at all restricted to the eastern Persian side of the Islamic world. This is the regalia of the entire Islamic world in this period. Next. The symbolism of the two lions goes back very, very far. We'll just take Persian examples. The great hero who rises with the two lions whom he quells, just as he is a great and powerful hunter. These are seals from King Darius the Great, early 6th century BC, and from much the same period, roughly 400 BC, the famous winged lion sphinxes face to face or turning their heads away from each other. And you get this idea that the symbol of everlasting life, or Ahura Mazda, rises from between them. Next. And this lion symbolism radiates from Persia, so that you see it in India, where the heroes and the saints also sit upon lion thrones, like the Jain saint, Mahavira, represented as a Chakravarti, a world ruler, upon a lion throne. 
two lions in this 7th century piece, and here adopted also by the Jews. The Mesopotamian Jews who live under Sasanian rule in the 5th and 6th century adopt Sasanian symbolism, paraphernalia, in their descriptions of King Solomon, who also is described as seated upon a lion throne. The lions are two talismans which protect the throne from those unworthy to sit thereupon. Here you get the two lions in one of these many vessels that have been found from, Jew from Jewish communities as far west as Rome in the third century AD. Next. So I just used these few Christian symbols because for many people in the West it's probably easier to grasp the notion behind the twin lions through Christian symbols, Romanesque 12th century Christian symbols. The basic idea is if you have two lions or two monsters with the idea that the lion and the dragon in so much symbolism are equivalent ideas and you'll see why. This is a 12th century Romanesque pulpit from Ravello near Naples, 12th century, and the idea represents Jonah and not the whale, but the monster. The idea is Jonah disappears into the maw of the monster and he is regurgitated three days later. To Christians, a symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. This means that the two monsters are twin because they have a dual function. They are evil, they keep away those who, people from the treasure, from the throne, from the crown, and yet they also serve a useful function because they guard the treasure from those who are unworthy. And the true hero vanquishes the twin monsters and then you get the book of life. Just as here you get Christ at Autun upon a dragon throne. Two dragons, life absurgent between the two monsters. Next. This is the symbolism which equates the lion and the dragon in these Christian representations from the Psalms. Christ rises as heroic warrior and he crushes underfoot both the lion and the serpent. This is 5th, 5th century Ravenna. This is late 7th century Carolingian France. Next. Now you get the same idea in Islamic heraldry. Many swords like this Nasrid sword from Spain, 15th century, between the two lion monsters, you get Wallah Allah. There is no God, there is no victor but God. Or this Ottoman sword represented on one of the Ottoman banners captured by the Venetians at Lepanto in the 16th century, in 1571, between the two dragons, you get the crescent and the symbol of Islam. This is the sword of Ali. The poet Nizami says, when the king snatched up his crown from between the two monsters. The two lions were like the twin jaws of a dragon and the pearl was in between. Next. So two pictures from Egypt, one ancient Egypt between the two lions, the cross and the son of life, resurrection from death, and from Islamic Egypt, 15th century, between the two dragons, the most sacred names in Islam. Muhammad, Ali, and Allah here. Next. So this representation of King Bahram between the two lions was multiplied in Sasanian art. So we actually have textiles going back 
this may be a Byzantine copy of a Sasanian textile found in a cathedral in France, Cathedral of Sens, representing Bahram between the two lions. This is pre-Islamic. And from the Islamic period, we get Bahram again between the two lions, which he crushes almost Gilgamesh-like, which was preserved in Spain. This is from 11th century Muslim Spain and was found in, as the, um, the shroud of a 12th century Spanish Catholic bishop, which is how it was preserved. Next. 16th century representations. The king between the two lions whom he has quelled. This is 16th century Iranian. Shiraz, second half of the 16th century. This bullheaded mace. And here, more important painting, done in 1595. More important because it was done in Lahore for Emperor Akbar shown as the prince crowning himself. And the idea is that Akbar, emperor of India, is the new Bahram, the new Kasmakrator. And according to Islamic tradition, Bahram, the Sasanian king, was also the first king to be called Malikul Arab wal-Ajam, king of the Arabs and the non-Arabs, meaning the Kasmakrator. So Akbar, the king, the ruling king himself, is represented as the archetypal hero between the twin lions, surrounded by the Arabs and the non-Arabs, meaning the whole world. Next. So a quick excursus into the West. We see such lion thrones multiply in the art of the medieval Christian West very much during the conquest of Spanish Muslim Toledo by the Castilians. This is Emperor Otto III at the turn of the 11th century. And here is King Alfonso the Great, conqueror of Toledo in 1085, represented slightly later. I'm going to insist on this just because you're going to see the little trick that's going to show up in the next two. When you look at the Bayou Tapestry, you will be surprised to see that this 11th century piece shows the good king, Edward the Confessor, on a lion throne, legitimate king, but Harold gets no lions on his throne because the embroiderers of this tapestry consider, or this embroidery really, consider him to be a usurper. Next two. King Duke William, even before his conquest of England, however, sits upon a lion throne and Harold pays him homage. This is a later, late 15th and reproduced in, in an early 16th century version of one of the kings of France, Charles V, done for Francis I. He sits upon both a lion throne and a dragon throne. So you see the two symbols coming together. This, these paintings and the association we can make with Persian and Islamic heraldry explain one of the strangest enigmas, riddles, of medieval European history, which is that when the king of England, Edward III, Plantagenet, Plantagenet, 1346, challenged the Valois king of France, saying, you are not the true king of France. I am. Well, of course, the French king protested. And Edward III Plantagenet sent a friar to the pope in Rome saying, I challenge the king of France to pick up the crown of France from between two unchained lions. And if he does not dare do so, then I proclaim myself the true king of France and began 
the Hundred Years' War, since the King of France had no intention of fetching his crown from between two unchained lions. And Marc Bloch, the great French medievalist who mentions this strange story which he found in the archives, says, I have absolutely no idea where these 14th century English and French kings are coming up with this strange story of picking up your crown from between two lions. There are no lions, real lions, in the menagerie, in the zoos of English and French kings in the 14th century. Well, we do have a 14th century French romance which appears as a very close transposition of the tale of the Persian king Bahram picking up his crown from between the two lions. It's called the Romance of Berenus, and it's all in there. So it definitely was one of the, trans one of the relations transmitted from the European Muslim South to the Christian European North. Next. So we have one last symbol here, which is the halo. Now the halo appears in all sorts of strange ways in the early 13th century art of Baghdad, very much adopted from the Byzantines. Indeed, this may have been an actual Byzantine artist working for some Abbasid official or for the caliph himself in Baghdad, showing Dioscorides as a Byzantine saint in Greek drapery with his disciples for an Arabic translation from the Greek treatise De Materia Medica of uh, Dioscorides. What makes Dioscorides a Muslim is just the addition of a turban, but he also has a halo, and you have halos all around these saintly-looking characters in the great Ismaili book, The Brothers of Purity, written in the early 13th century in Iraq with Byzantine-type drapery. Now, what do these halos mean? Perhaps nothing more than decoration? We'll look at the next pictures. Well, on the left, Badruddin Lulu, the pearl, ruler of northern Iraq in the early 13th century, riding to the hunt with his halo and with angels carrying, bearing a cloth of victory over his head, which you see in Roman imperial art, which you also see in Sasanian art. Now, this kind of art, which was so heavily indebted to Sasanian and Byzantine precedent, seemed to become swept away with the Mongol invasions. Fall of Baghdad in 1258 and the setting up of a Mongol ruler as king of Persia in 1260, the Ilkhans, the vassal Khans, vassals to the great lord who ruled in Beijing, and to the Mongol rulers of Iran. Chinese art was not just a fashion, Chinese art was imperial art, because that was the art which surrounded the power of their overlord, their legitimate suzerain, the great Khan in Beijing. This is one of the many reasons why, after the middle of the 13th century, you begin to get a wave of Chinese influences in Islamic art, as in this illustration for the Book of Kings of Ferdowsi, illustrated, however, for a Mongol ruler in what is now northwestern Iran, in Tabriz in the early 14th century. Everybody's depicted wearing Mongol-type armor, and you get these wonderful Chinese clouds, and the artist, who is a genius, has adapted the page so that the, line, the columns of text become the banners of the knights fluttering from their poles. This great wave of violence, however, is not going to abolish the symbolic content. Quite the contrary. This Chinese influence will be adapted, and the same royal symbols will endure. Look at the next two. Now, the, what's left of the Abbasid royal house takes refuge in Cairo, 
And the Mamluk sultans very much perpetuate all this traditional symbolism in Egypt. So that you get the Mamluk ruler here in this 14th century piece sitting upon the throne and you get the two angels and he holds the cup against his heart and he also has the white kerchief as if still a Byzantine mappa. On the right you have the Mongol ruler. Probably this is a portrait of Ghazan Khan, the Mongol ruler of Iran who converted to Islam in 1295 but nevertheless most certainly clung to the idea that he was a legitimate Mongol ruler and a vassal to the Mongol overlord in Beijing. And yet this very Mongol looking ruler is represented here as Solomon or if you like Solomon is represented looking very much like the Mongol ruler of the time. And Solomon in this Mongol Iranian picture of the turn of the 13th and 14th century has the halo like a Sasanian king. The crown has been so stylized that you no longer recognize the wings. He's seated upon the lion throne. On one side he has the good minister Azaf. On the other side you have the demon in submission here identified with Goliath, Jalut. The same angels holding another cloth of victory over the king's head but in this case instead of a cup the king clutches his seal, the seal of Solomon or star of David because in Islamic symbolism the seal and the cup are equivalent symbols both signifying the heart. It's interesting to see the grail symbolism in 13th century Europe as in the poetry of Wolfram von Eschenbach can show that the grail can be regarded as a precious stone and not only as a cup. The king also clutches the kerchief of world rule just like this Mamluk Sultan here. Uh, can you just give me the left? A great representation of a Mongol ruler. I think Oleg Rabar believes this to be Gaikhatu Khan, one of the, one of the rulers of uh, Mongol-dominated Iran, represented, however, as if he were one of the kings of Ferdowsi's Book of Kings with the idea that the Mongol ruler is now the successor to the caliphs and he is the successor to the ancient Persian kings. No contradiction but convergence. And to be the successor of the caliphs means also be, to be the successor of Solomon. So even if you get Chinese influence in the decor, you still get the royal symbolism here with a cup held against the ruler's heart. Left? I'm sorry, right, right, I'm sorry. This is a representation of Tamerlane, the Neo-Mongol emperor who was crowned in 1370 but represented here more than a hundred years later by the great painter Bezad of Herat. In this case the symbolism surrounding the ruler has been limited to the white kerchief. Next two. So you see the white the kerchief multiplied in 15th and 16th century representations of rulers. This is the very famous portrait of the conqueror of Constantinople in 1453, here he's depicted more in 1480 towards the end of his life, Sultan Mehmed the Conqueror, he has the kerchief of a Roman or Byzantine governor and he has the archer's ring, he is a warrior but he sniffs a rose because even though the ruler represents or mirrors God's wrath, his kar, 
He also sniffs the rose of God's beauty and grace, Lutf. Another representation of a Turkic ruler from the early 16th century, Shaibani Khan, the Uzbek conqueror, the, the founder of, in a sense, of what is now Uzbekistan, if you want to trace it that way. And Shaibani Khan has the archer's ring and the kerchief of his rule, as well as the instruments of a calligrapher to show that he is a man of culture. Next two. Now, again, this tenacity of the symbols can be illustrated through depictions of the last great Muslim dynasty in terms of artistic productivity. This, from Tajikistan, pre-Islamic, roughly 650 AD or so, the prince and his vassal who acknowledges himself as his vassal as he points to himself. And look at this picture done in Lahore in 1595, which is theoretically supposed to represent Babur, king of Kabul and founder of the Mughal dynasty, being received as a guest by his cousin, the king of Herat, Badi-uz-Zaman Mirza, in the year 1506. Now, even though Babur is supposed to be the guest and Badi-uz-Zaman Mirza is supposed to be the royal host in a palace which the artist has depicted as if it were an Indian palace of marble. Yet, Prince Badi-uz-Zaman Mirza shows himself the vassal, and Babur is shown as the true king, because it is he who holds the cup against his heart and clutches the kerchief of imperial rule. So all these pictures are full of little details and signs. Next two. We'll follow the Mughal dynasty. Babur and his son Humayun, these paintings by Payag. Nothing seems to distinguish these kings except for the glory of their costume. And yet, Humayun, the second Mughal emperor in the 17th century painting, done 100 years after his death, is depicted with the halo. The art of Mughal India is going to revive the halo as a symbol of royal rule, consciously drawing from Persian imperial precedent and explicitly saying so. Next two pictures. The man who seems to be associated with this idea is Abul Fazl represented here, who is a counselor and a chronicler for the Emperor Akbar. And Abul Fazl, whose Islamic faith may have been very, very lukewarm, but it was certainly a dedicated admirer of ancient Persian kingship, revives all sorts of Persian terms, terminology, and most notably the idea that the king's head should be surrounded by a halo. This had gone out of fashion for 200 years, and now it's very much revived. But of course, Emperor Akbar is depicted here with the halo as the cosmic ruler. So you get the, not the sheep, but the calf and the lion in peace side by side, with angels borrowed now from European art. The Portuguese have reached Goa, crowning the king. But of course, this isn't a Muslim who is painting this. This is a Hindu, Amale Govardhan, one of the many Hindus who are welcomed to Akbar's court and who master Persian symbolism, European influences, and the most intricate notions of Islamic mysticism. Take the next two pictures. As we explore the halo here, Bichitr is one of these Hindus who at the courts of the emperors 
Jahangir and Shah Jahan shows an astonishing mastery of the most arcane symbols of Persian language Sufism. These 17th century Indian Hindu intellectuals at the Mughal court show a mastery of Islamic culture in its Persianate phase, which can be compared to the mastery shown by Indians today for all manifestations, including the most scientifically abstruse of universal or westernized global culture. So, Bichitr here has represented Emperor Jahangir sitting upon an hourglass throne. The throne he accedes to by this footstool so that you have a demon upholding the footstool with the idea that the king is a new Solomon so the demon is in submission. And the artist very modestly has placed his own signature on the footstool, Amali Bichitr. But the king knows that his worldly glory is just an hourglass which ebbs away. And even though the angels write, may he live forever, nevertheless, the king looks upon the dervish, Hassan Chishti, the master of the most holy shrine in Islamic India, and gives him a book in preference to the rulers of the Muslim world or the Christian world. The Muslim world being the Ottoman Sultan, copied here by Bichitr from a European depiction of one of the three wise men. And this is King James I of England, copied by Bichitr from a miniature portrait brought by the English ambassador, Sir Thomas Rowe. But the most extraordinary part of this whole portrait, of course, is the halo in which Bichitr has managed to compress one of the most complicated ideas in all Islamic poetry, the idea that you get in Omar ibn al-Farid, an Egyptian Sufi of the 13th century, much glossed and commented upon in 15th century Central Asia by people like Jami, with the idea that the heart is a mirror. Upon this heart, God's light shines just as the sun shines upon the moon. The full moon reflects the sun, and if you compare it to a grail, then the idea is that the sun fills the grail, and all you see of the grail is its rim, which is compared to the horns of the moon. And these ideas are brought together in the glorious halo of Emperor Jahangir. In Ottoman art, you do get this, but in abstract compositions, where it's known as a heliye. And Bichitr went on working under Jahangir's successor, Shah Jahan, in one of the most audacious adaptations of Ibn Arabi's cosmology to royal representation, with the idea that Jahangir stands before his minister, as if Solomon before Azath, indeed, this minister is called Asaf, he's a relative of his, who holds up the king's ring. And the king's halo can be seen to be a direct emanation from God. And the Hindu artist, Bichetra, has had no qualms about depicting God the Father himself, imitated from a European painting brought by Catholic visitors, Jesuits, to the Mughal court. Next two. Earlier in his reign, this is another Chandramal, another Hindu painter portrayed Shah Jahan upon his accession with the same idea. The emperor looks at his own portrait upon his signet ring just as 
in the philosophy of Ibn Arabi, when God creates Adam, he looks upon Adam as if Adam, the human figure, were the seal of creation, so that Adam becomes the very eye with which God looks upon himself. God is invisible, Adam is visible. And the notion of Adam as the seal upon the ring of creation is transferred to the idea that Solomon's ring, the ring of kingly power, is the seal of creation in the hands of the cosmocrator. And Shah Jahan here is contemplating himself upon the very ring of his own seal. Next two. So even though Jahan, Shah Jahan claimed to be a very pious Islamic ruler, here he's just in, with his halo here, in discussion with his governor of Peshawar, Mahabat Khan, blessed by a mullah, nevertheless we know he was overthrown and imprisoned by his very pious son with whom we started this exposition, Emperor Aurangzeb, who shut up his father in 1658 in Agra Fort, condemned his brother Dara Shuko, who claimed to be able to reconcile Hindus and Muslims under Muslim rule, condemned his brother to death as a heretic and ruled as one of the strictest Islamic kings in all Islamic history. And nevertheless, Aurangzeb is portrayed here just like his father with the halo of royalty. Two more to conclude this section and then I'll have to ask you a question. The, the conference was called from Baghdad to Bengal, so to bring it into more recent India, after the collapse of the Mughal Empire, we have seen how the Hindu kings have adapted all the paraphernalia of these Mughal kings and continue to be portrayed with halos, even though the reality of their power belongs to the British. As in this mid-19th century painting, 1851, Rajas, this is Udaipur, Rajputan, Rajput Rajas visiting each other for a wedding party. They have all the paraphernalia of Mughal world rulers, like the halos, which they wear, but the British are now in power. The British who will, of course, bring new influences to bear on an artistic tradition that is going to disintegrate. Now, this is the first section of this talk, but we've run late, unfortunately. And I have to ask you, I can show you a few more pictures if you like, which show that though this art is royal, it does not mean that it is devoid of spiritual purpose. In actual fact, the kings are going to sponsor a spiritual revolution which will allow some of the highest dignitaries of the Islamic world in the 15th century kingdom of Herat and their spiritual successors in Iran and India and indeed Turkey to proclaim that this art indeed was sacred and is charged with every Sufi symbol which you find in the literature. So perhaps I can take it, I don't want to stretch your patience, perhaps to the Rosetta Stone of this art and we can leave it there. It's as you like. Just a few more. It's up to you. Okay. Next two. Okay, here are some of the boldest pictures in Islamic art and what they mean. Early 17th century, this painting to complete a book of poems of Nizami for Emperor Jahangir shows the painter and the calligrapher face 
to face as equals. The calligrapher writes with a vegetal pen and the painter inscribes with an animal pen, meaning a pen made of squirrel fur. The idea is that these 17th century Muslim artists are boldly stating what 16th century Muslim writers have said, and indeed we can push it back to Jami in the 15th century, the qalam, whether used by the painter or by the scribe, is the same instrument. Indeed, God himself is a painter. And when the poet Jami uses the word qalam or kilk or khame, we are never quite sure whether he means a brush or a stylus. This, idea, this is Sunni, northern India. In Shi'i Iran, in the same period, early 17th century, we get the artist Rezaya Abbasi pushing this idea very far indeed by using the instrument of the calligrapher to depict, just like the Chinese use the instrument of the calligrapher in order to paint. In this case, it's the reed pen. So you get the same volutes of Arabic calligraphy with variations in the width of the line where the artist depicts. This is not a tailor, and this is not a vendor of turbans. These are calligraphic exercises where the painter or the artist shows his virtuosity in handling the line. This is a calligrapher, and the instruments of his calligraphy are here. They're the same as here, the scissors and the inkwell and the pens. The idea that calligraphy and painting are twin aspects of God's creation made visible through the word and through forms. Very bold idea, but we can explore more. Next two. Now, we're coming to the most important pictures in the entire history of Islamic art. This is the ruler, depicted by Bizad in Herat in the year 1494. The ruler is Sultan Hussein Mirza, and this is supposed to be an illustration from the romance of Khosrow Washirin, King Khosrowiz and the Lady Sweet. What's important in this painting is that the artist, Bizad, depicts the reigning king, and in the king's court, you have here a portrait of the highest, most eminent spiritual master of Islamic civilization at the end of the 15th century. Master Jami was regarded for his writings in both Persian and Arabic as the greatest poet and most profound commentator on Ibn Arabi in the entire Islamic world to the point that he was read in China by Chinese Muslims and he was invited to come to Istanbul by the Ottoman ruler to grace the Ottoman court. He remained in the kingdom of Herat. Now, Jami died in 1492. This painting was done in 1494, two years after Jami's death. So you could say that the painter dared depict somebody who was the equivalent of an Ottoman Sheikh ul Islam, the highest Sunni cleric of all. Now he dared paint him because he was already dead? Well, how about this painting here, which was done in 1486, while Jami was still alive? This is a portrait of the highest Islamic dignitary, the most respected, eminent Islamic Sunni dignitary, recognized as such in the entire Eastern Islamic world of the late 15th century. In this painting, Qasim Ali, one of Bizad's fellow workers, has depicted the dream garden 
of the great poets, Jami, who is the most eminent poet and spiritual leader of the kingdom of Herat, introduces the Grand Vizier, who's represented here also, but here with a whiter beard, the Vizier Navoyi, who is also a poet, but who writes in Turkish rather than in Persian. And Jami introduces Navoyi to the ghosts of the great Persian poets of the past, as if to say, this Turkish writer is now worthy to rank among the great Persian writers, all ranked here in a dream garden, because it's all a dream. This is a frontispiece to the collected poems of the Prime Minister. And the horned moon which you see here is a moon you will never see in a sky in the Northern Hemisphere, because it points downwards in direct allusion to the saint who prostrates himself. This is Nizami, the poet, the 12th century poet, regarded as the most eminent of poets. And Jami introduces the minister to Nizami with the same feeling with which you get Virgil introducing Dante to the great poets of the Greek and Roman past in Canto Four of the Inferno. It's a very parallel idea. Honorate l'altissimo poeta. For our purposes, we have to stress this is the highest religious leader in the kingdom of Herat, and this is the prime minister of the kingdom. And they are both depicted from the life, which means it is absolutely impossible that the artist who used very expensive material, everything that's blue is lapis lazuli, which cost a fortune to powder into paint. He is painting this with the full permission both of the spiritual leader and the political leader. Indeed, this is an illustration to the political leader's own poetry. Next two. In these books which were presented to the Sultan of Herat by Bezad, you get this constant repetition of the figure of the initiating saint. If you just go back to, just go back. See him here? This is supposed to represent Nizami. Okay, again, now go forward. Again, we see the same saintly character. This is the Sheikh of initiation. This is a mosque. The idea is, if this art is not sacred, what is the Sheikh doing sitting within the very niche of prayer with a quotation from the Quran, upright is he who worshipeth in the mihrab. This is getting very powerful. It's becoming very difficult to argue. This is all an aberration. It's all decoration. It doesn't have any spiritual meaning, and it doesn't matter. Well, what about this? And this is not just royal art. Something else is being implied. Next two. Again, the figure of the master of initiation, painted in early 17th century India by great artist Muhammad Ali of Golconda, and here by Bezad, representing the story of Majnun Layli. We can come back to all the allegory in a painting like this. It's enough to show, even here, and we might conclude with just a few more, how much this art becomes charged with as much symbolism, important symbolism, as the art of contemporary late Gothic Europe. You, can we get this sharper, or we'll be able to see it later on? No, you can't get it any sharper than that? Yes, you can. The idea is, Young, this young poet here, the future Majnun, the mad one for love, 
for the first time, sees in school the girl who is going to become his beloved. And she sits here. His name is still Qais. It's going to become Majnun, being the mad one for love. And, says the poet, The veil was uplifted from her beauty, and she stands revealed in all her beauty in a niche, which is the niche of a mosque. Because it says so. The same Quranic quotation. This means that the object of contemplation becomes a young woman's face, which is the mirror of God's beauty. And because the young poet has recognized this, he dips his pen into his inkwell to write the first poem in her praise. And over the poet, who is a saint, rises the tree of life, which is depicted as a plain tree in autumn because Ibn Arabi tells us the tree of life, when faced, the tree of existence, the tree of the cosmos, kathratul alwan, the multiplicity of its colors, and all its leaves trembled, when the tree beheld the countenance of the saint, and the tree bows before the saint. So the tree appears, the tree of life, growing beside the fount of life, which is the ablution fount of this school, which is also a mosque, grows over the saint like a canopy. This saint writes a poem in praise of this saint, who is the epiphany, the manifestation of the Godhead. Now we seem to be getting very, very far away from ideas of Islamic iconophobia, but this is the essence of Sufism. Indeed, the poet is represented here as he is here, as the the mirror of the unseen world. He who teaches us as initiator of what we lesser folk cannot understand except through great painters or through great poets. Next two. This is the Rosetta Stone. It's a painting by Bezad, 1465-1535, here represented later in life with a Shi turban. He was still officially a Sunni when he painted this for Sultan Hussein in the year 1488. Now, when I say this is the Rosetta Stone, it's because this, this painting is well known. It was theoretically, this is an illustration to the orchard, Bustan, by the 13th century Persian poet Saadi. And it's supposed to represent Joseph fleeing from the clutches of Potiphar's wife, known as Zuleikha in Islamic languages. He has the halo, and somebody scratched away his face, a later owner, and I think we have a pretty good idea who that owner is. Joseph flees from this enchanted palace in which Zuleikha has tried to entrap Joseph. Now, it's often been remarked by scholars that when Bizad painted this in 1488, it's actually dated here. And Bizad's signature is here. When Bizad painted this, the great poet of Herat and spiritual leader of Herat, Jami, had just completed a poem on the same subject in 1487. Now, was there a coincidence? Did Jami, the spiritual leader, have anything to do with this painting? Well, the answer came here. I deciphered the verses which are here. And the verses which are here come from Jami. Now, this means that the painting is an illustration both to Saadi and to Jami. And since this book was presented to the king using poems by Jami, 
it is absolutely impossible that Jean Mi, as the most eminent religious dignitary in the kingdom, would not know about it. And if he knew about it, then he had to authorize it. Indeed, this is what the verses say. Oh, the most important, which I can't, I won't read them all to you. One of them here says, Daru jos shuk kasne. Here, except for the lover and the beloved, is no one. If you look back to the poem from which these verses are taken, then you find Jami is referring to a marvelous artist who created this wonderful castle, and he says of this artist, Basang ar surate murre kashide sobok sangegeron as jotaride. If upon a stone he were to draw the picture of a bird so light, the heavy stone would take flight. Any 15th century Muslim would recognize immediately what that means, and this is what we're going to have to conclude our talk upon. It is an allusion to the miracle of Christ referred to in the Quran, where Christ, the child Christ, molded clay figures of birds, blew upon them, and gave them life. Now, we can find this in some of the so-called apocryphal gospels, the miracle of the Christ child molding birds of clay, blowing upon them, and giving them life. And the Quran says that Christ did this ba'ivni, with my permission. This is God speaking. The idea is that the prohibition, the so-called prohibition of art in medieval Islam is supposed to stem from one tradition attributed to a member of the Prophet's family by the traditionist al-Bukhari who wrote in the 9th century. And according to the traditionists of the 9th century, like al-Bukhari, the idea is the figurative artist when he will appear before God on Judgment Day, will be told, can you blow life into your creation? Oh, you can't? Off to hell you go. Therefore, desist from creating figures and just paint vegetables and roses and things of the sort. Now, what Jami is doing is overturning the prohibition completely. Because the idea is, be'ivni, with my permission. Now, God permitted Christ to mold the clay figures and indeed to blow the spirit, the ruh, ruah, into them and give them life. Give me the next two. It's very rare to find depictions of this in Western Christian art, but I have found this, thanks to Lucette Valency, in from a 12th century Romanesque church in Switzerland, which shows the miracle of the Christ child blowing life into the clay birds. And of course we know that in Christian perception, Christ appears as the very manifestation of the divine in the epiphany upon the mountain before the three odd saints. Now one thing we can never forget is that Islam appears on the scene not only after Judaism, but after Christianity. When Christianity talks about the theophany, the appearance of God as made manifest in Christ, Christian Arabic uses the word 
Tajalli, the manifestation, glorious, like a shining mirror. This is the word used by the Sufis to describe any human appearance which mirrors the beauty of God. Now, Jami's illusion was certainly caught by the later tradition in Iran, India, and Turkey, as we can tell from very precise verses in which Jami's illusion to the bird of Christ taking wing is made to apply specifically to the artist Bezad. And I'll just quote, well, one or two. Um, this is uh, Khandamir, chronicler to the Safavid kings in the earlier 16th century, where he says, Muye kalamash ze ustodi John doda basurate jamodi. The hair of his brush through his mastery gave the spirit unto the mineral form, the mineral figure. And the chronicler Qazi Ahmad in the late 16th century in Isfahan writes, Bud surate murgeu dil pazir chu murge masiho shode ruh gir. Meaning, the bird which he painted so like an icon, so grabbed your heart that it became like unto the bird of Christ, Morre Masiho, and took spirit. Now that makes it absolutely clear that Bizad was recognized as a Sufi saint and his art as charged with Sufi symbolism because his art is a theophany. It is a mirroring of the glory of God. And this is why the chroniclers in the 16th century call Bizad the Mazhare Sawar, the manifestation of the images in the mind of God. Next two. The theophany in Islam, in these 15, early 15th century painting, the angels bow before the figure of Adam, who is God's creation made manifest. Even the tree, the tree of life, bows before Adam, and only the devil refuses. Indeed, the Sufis caricature those Muslim monotheists who refuse to recognize the manifestation as a strict Muslim theologian of the more orthodox type, as in this 16th century painting here, where the devil, the dark complexion, is shown as a Sunni mullah refusing to recognize, as the angels do, the theophany with halo in Adam and Eve. Well, I think it's been a long evening and we could go much further in all these symbols. Be assured that not a single detail of costume, of vegetation, an animal, a bird, an angel, a demon, a tree, a horse, is devoid of symbolism in these pictures, which come to be fully as charged with allegories as the poetry which they not only illustrate but literally illuminate. These paintings invite us to read literature of the Islamic world from the 13th century on through their own vision. These, book, these paintings are found in books, they belong to books, and they are associated with very precise ideas. So this I think it's best to stop here because otherwise we could just go on and on into the world of symbols. But these were at least 
the two gateways, the king's symbolism and the symbolism of God made manifest and the miracle of Christ's bird through the hands of the painter Bizod. Thank you very, very much. Thank <laughs> you.